Hi, everybody. In today's episode, I'll be interviewing Georgia Troiani, a grad student at UCSB on her path to linguistics. Enjoy. All right. So um, first, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, what's your name and just some hobbies? Okay. So I, my name is Giorgia, Giorgia Troiani. I am a PhD student in linguistics at University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm originally from Italy. Um, I got my bachelor and master's degree in uh, translation originally in Italy. Um, and I moved to the United States four years ago Uh I am very passionate about um, um, sci-fi literature, uh, in particular uh, Russian um, literature from the 20s. I read uh, a lot of novels about space exploration. Um, and I am one of my hobbies. I paint uh, a bit. I practice boxing. Um, I used to swim when I was younger. Um, and I like hiking a lot. Yeah. Not a big fan of cooking. <laughs> nice. Um, and so before we get into your background, um, how about you just tell me or go more into depth about what you do today? Mm -hmm. In the program, like my research uh, area yeah. in linguistics. Yeah. Okay, so uh, today I changed a bit from when I started my program, but today I mainly work with discourse and grammar. So I look at how uh, people use language in their everyday life uh, and try to see how the routinized use of language basically influences grammar. So at the basis of my research, there is this idea that uh, the grammatical forms that exist in every language of the world, they are um, a product of uh, routinized interaction between humans. And so the idea is that grammar emerges from um, the way in which people use language in their everyday life. And that, of course, means that we need to take into account um, cognitive factors, so for example, how our brains are shaped, but also social factors, so hierarchies between uh, people um, have to be factored into our study of language. I specifically um, study um, direct reported speech, so I study how people report uh, um, discourse that has been previously, sa previously said by other people into their conversation today. Um, and I study that on Kazakh, which is a language uh, spoken in Central Asia, um, in the Republic of Kazakhstan. Um, so I'm interested in looking at how constructions for reporting what other people previously said are influenced um, by the position in the conversation in which they show up, basically. Um, I use uh, uh, quantitative methods for my analysis, so that means and that I... Um, work a bit with computational linguistics. Um, I am an expert in transcription of conversation. I work with uh, a little tiny bit of machine learning these days. Um, and um, 
as a side project to what I'm doing uh, for my dissertation, I also am uh, assisting in the development of a software for the analysis of language news in everyday life. Uh, the software is called Resonator, and I have been uh, coordinating the translation uh, side of it and the writing up of the documentation and uh, testing of the software. So I am a researcher and I do a bit of uh, uh, software development on the side. Yeah. yeah, that's super interesting. And um, can you tell me a little bit how you got interested in this field, whether it was when you were younger or more recently? Yeah, so when I started out originally, when I finished my high school, uh, um, I was interested in languages. Uh, um, I was very interested in languages. I was very interested in studying uh, uh, Russian in particular um, because I was very passionate already about um, sci-fi fiction and Russian authors are kind of very well known <laughs> in the area. So I started studying Russian. Um, I studied Russian for um, six years, basically, um, through my bachelor and master. Um, I studied Russian and Arabic. Um, and I wanted to become a translator at the time. I, so I took translation classes, not so much linguistics classes, um, to be honest. I didn't really know what linguistics was. Um, until uh, in my last year of the master's program, I uh, won a, um, a fellowship um, to go to Siberia um, to teach Italian in a university there. So I arrived in this place uh, close to the Lake Baikal in the um, northern, um, so the south southern border of Russia, uh, very close to Mongolia. And I still wanted to become a translator, but I was not very good at translating. I have to say it was very tough for me. Um, when I arrived there, I discovered that in this area where I, where I was living, there was a population um, that uh, was not speaking Russian. Their native language is called Buryat and is a Mongolic language. And I had uh, the... Um, I had the luck of having some of the students in this course of Italian that I was teaching that um, were speakers of this language and they were um, uh, interested in showing me uh, their culture. Um, and I met one person in particular whose dad was a shaman in the community where she was from and uh, he was gracious enough to let me attend some of the rituals. So I got interested in understanding how, uh, well, this, uh, first of all, why um, why these people would speak their native language only in some circumstances, but not in others. So I, for, for me, being a speaker of Italian was strange to think that uh, there are some moments of your life in which you might not use your native language and you are forced to use another one. Um, this situation was very similar for my grandparents because my grandparents used to speak uh, some local varieties of Italian that um, during uh, the fascist dictatorship were completely um, erased from the country. Um, but my parents and me, I, we all grew up speaking only one variety. 
So to me, it was interesting to understand why these things happened. And I got in contact with this uh, friend of mine, Ayuna. Uh, she introduced me to her dad and I started, uh, started noticing that um, people um, tended to use their native language more often when they were talking about religion. And, and so I got interested in understanding uh, um, whether um, the language, the way in which you use uh, the grammar in your language can change if you basically always only use some very specific genres in these varieties. So if you, let's say, for the Italian case, it would be if you were to learn Italian only by going to mass, for example, to a Catholic mass, um, the structures you would be using would be very different from everyday conversation. So what type of long-term effects does this um, decision um, of using the language only in religious format have um, on the um, emergence of grammar um, in the future? So I, um, when I came back from Siberia after a year, I had to decide what to write my thesis, my master thesis on. Um, originally, it should have been a translation, but I was lucky enough that a professor in uh, linguistic anthropology um, took me as advisee, and so he let me um, write a thesis on the topic of um, the shamanic rituals in Siberia. Um, and this is how I encountered linguistics, basically, for the first time. I had no training as a linguist whatsoever when I was in Siberia. Um, it was quite stressful to figure out what I had to do in order to collect data. Um, but once I finished my master's thesis, I decided that I was really interested in linguistics much more than in uh, translation. And I decided to go on uh, in this field. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, and I know you touched on machine learning and computation linguistics. And so what would you say is like the most um, interesting intersection between linguistics and technology in that kind of field? Oh, uh, I would say there are a lot of very interesting developments. Um, for me personally, I think the most interesting uh, um I guess there are two interesting intersections that I see. One is um, at the pure, you know, technological and research-driven aspect of things. I think that uh, the developments we are reaching in conversational agents are extremely interesting. Um, the way in which conversational agents or chatbots used to work even like less than 10 years ago was extremely clunky. Um, I remember that uh, one exam that we had to take in Italy on like uh, technologies for the humanities, part of the exam was basically to design a set of questions so that you force a chatbot to reveal to you that they were a robot and not a human being. And it was incredibly easy, like they would get confused uh, immediately uh, with very simple questions. But now we reached uh, um, a level of complexity. Uh, and I think the way in which um, conversational agents now are able to um, maintain um, extended chunks of conversation and to remember in a way um, 
what has been said previously um, is incredibly fascinating. It's really, really cool. Uh, so yeah, I think it's cool that they're going towards the direction in which one could have a computer holding a conversation, a meaningful one with you. And then I think in the more... Uh, um, maybe community or public engagement side of things, uh, uh, one very cool development of um, technology and language nowadays, I think, is the uh, possibility of developing video games for language learning purposes. Um, this is something that I've personally done uh, with the uh, speaker of uh, Sansavi, which is a language uh, uh, belonging to the Mixtec family, a, a group of families being spoken in Oaxaca, in Mexico. Um, so this person, Jeremias, uh, Jeremias Salazar, is an activist uh, um, in the area of Santa Maria, and together we developed a small video game to teach children how to, um, um, how to remember some words in Mixtec. Um, and that I think is extremely cool that uh, with technology nowadays and with some game engines uh, that are preset in a specific way, you can have uh, community members that even if they don't have uh, extremely high technical literacy, they can uh, uh, contribute to the development of video games and in that way maintain uh, the language use active in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and kind of like the main focus of this podcast is how language impacts society. Um, and I'd love to hear your point of view on like some ways language or the use of language can impact our society, um, just either in general or maybe more specific to you. Okay. Yeah, well, I guess uh, there are a lot of um, examples, I think, especially, I guess, here in the United States, uh, I feel like, uh, you know, we the amount of languages that are spoken in the United States, I think that like the mere choice of speaking a language that is not English in your everyday life and with your friends and to be able to speak it on the street in public, that's something that is going to have a huge effect over how uh, tolerant in the long run society becomes if we are more exposed to you know the huge diversity that there is in this country. I remember that... Um, before coming to the United States, one thing that uh, was said to me in Italy that is kind of the routinized thing that you would, would hear in Europe about the United States is that uh, um, Americans don't learn languages, don't speak other languages, they only speak English. But then when I came here and I started um, teaching at the university level, it never happens time in a class in which there aren't at least 10 different languages being spoken by the people. So this is clearly a stereotype we have um, that is uh, not uh, true, uh, but is the consequence of the fact that the exposure to these other varieties is so limited um, in, the, in the public space. Um, so this is one <laughs> of these possible examples. Um, I guess, um, you know, now there are big debates on uh, uh, what someone calls uh, political correct language. I think these fights to introduce terminology that is more uh, um, inclusive is one of the possibly best um, examples of how, um, um, you know, the use of language um, and the 
and, and working on language um, is to have an impact over society. Um, um, being able to uh, name the problems that you are having or being able to call some uh, negative attitudes with a name um, is the first step that oppressed groups can take to, uh, you know, fight against uh, um, the conditions that are oppressing them. So the idea of being able to uh, to name name objects, basically, I would say that's uh, one of the most impactful things you could do. Yeah, those things are super impactful. Um, and kind of going back to your background, um, what would you say are some major challenges you face to get where you are now? Um, in terms of research in general or my life in particular? Um, pretty much anything that led up to where, I guess, like in the most recent years um, and led up to okay. where you are now. So it could be anything. Okay. Yeah. Well, for me, well, the first challenge was that um, nobody in my family really uh, finished high school. So I was the first person to graduate high school and I absolutely had no idea what I was getting into when I started the university and then a PhD. So the first challenge I encountered was actually understanding what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> which um, I think it's, um, it turned out well. Um, I think that I definitely learned to go with the flow, um, but I feel that um, some, some things that I've done, like, uh, I don't know, going to Siberia to do research there, I was not trained to do that. I was just there by chance. So that was definitely a huge challenge. I feel like... Uh, lot of things that came my way, I kind of learned how to deal with them by doing rather than uh, having a plan to approach them, which is not necessarily bad, but also can make you feel uh, like you are losing some time, like you are not, um, uh, you know, you need to put some effort into, <laughs> um, into understanding how things work. Um, in terms of research, uh, um, uh, definitely like I, I would say every day of being a graduate student is a challenge uh, there are new things to learn uh, there is time manage. Uh, you find yourself uh, uh, wanting to do everything and finding you don't have the time this was the first time in my life in which uh, I, I remember entering the graduate program thinking i like I would not have enough topics to write about and this has never been the case it has always been <laughs> oh I have so many questions and I want to do so many things but I would need uh, three lifetimes in order to complete them um, so um, the biggest challenge has been to uh, you know learn to find a way in which you can conjugate this huge passion for learning new things and discovering things about language and also not letting uh, this passion take over your life completely and um, um, swallow your time entirely, I would say. Um, so yeah, this, yeah, I think this has been the biggest challenge so far because challenges in research are, you know, uh, usually methodological. Uh, well, one big challenge for me was that I started the program that I was um, more on the 
uh, length of uh, being an anthropological linguist. So I used to work a lot with qualitative analysis, interviews, uh, data that I collected with recordings. Um, and then I pivoted away from these. I pivoted more into computational techniques. Uh, and so challenges have come uh, to me in the form of having to learn how to code, for example, which was something uh, I never did before coming into this program. Um, so, yeah. But these challenges are easier to tackle, I think. Yeah, for sure. Then. <laughs> Let's say you were talking to someone who um, didn't really know anything about linguistics and wasn't really interested in the field. Um, what were what are some like interesting things that you maybe would say to them um, to just kind of give them like a brief overview of like what linguistics is about? Okay, Ooh, that's a tough question because there are so many things I would like to say. Well, I would say the first thing I would tell to somebody that is interested in linguistics is that they need to enter this field abandoning the idea that um, what we do is a science that, because it's objective, uh, does not have to do with people's feelings. I feel like this is done uh, in studying linguistics because language is inherently used by humans and therefore uh, everything we do in this field uh, has ethical ramifications. So even if you study computational linguistics, uh, you cannot uh, do that, in my opinion, pretending that it's not going to have an effect over, uh, over people. So that's the first thing. And a lot of people, I feel, in the field forget about this. They think that you can take language as an object and just study it. And I don't think it's possible. You always need to factor in the fact you are working with humans all the time. Um, then the second thing I would say is that, uh, you know, there is this common misconception that linguists speak a lot of languages. Um, you can be a very good linguist even if you speak only your native variety uh, because linguistics is concerned with uh, the study of um, um, aspects that are related to language but not languages in itself. Um, interesting. Another thing I would say because of the type of research I do is that um, studying language as like devoided of the context in which it is used to me, makes no sense. So I hope that in the future, everybody in linguistics would study uh, language in use, language in discourse, uh, study people talking to each other at the time in which they're talking to each other. Um, and then I feel that uh, every, every area of linguistics in a way stem from these. So the, the type of research I do uh, leads me to believe that uh, everything you can study, be it, you know, uh, sociocultural linguistics or aspects of grammar or of the way in which you pronounce words of phonetic or phonology, all uh, needs to be studied in the context in which humans are actually interacting in the moment. Um, yeah, I hope this answer your questions i don't know if you wanted something even more specific no yeah this definitely answers the question yeah um and i guess kind of wrapping up is there any anything about linguistics that you'd like to add that maybe we didn't cover or um nothing at all really it's just up to you 
Um, so like, I don't know, you're interested in a, a um, like fun fact about language or uh, anything? Uh, yeah, pretty much anything. Yeah, I guess okay. you have like a fun fact that would be fun to share. So I can tell you one thing that uh, the, that I learned that was definitely the thing that made me think, oh my God, I absolutely want to study this course because this thing is so cool. <laughs> so I discovered in my first year of the PhD that uh, when you're talking in a conversation about somebody, uh, I mean, you want to refer, be able to refer to these people, right? So if, you, if I'm talking about a friend of mine, want to be able to uh, say a friend of mine or she or uh, Laura, let's say, okay? And uh, so I can refer to this person in multiple ways. Um, and I learned that there is this theory that uh, predicts uh, what's the form you're going to use in every portion of the conversation. And the idea behind that is that uh, the, um, um, at the beginning of a conversation, you would tend to uh, introduce uh, uh, your referent with a longer form. So I would tend to say this friend of mine. Uh, but as you go on in the conversation, you would start using shorter and shorter forms. And so you would switch to the pronoun, for example. Um, and I, I find these things so fascinating. I think that there are um, cognitive reasons why um, you are able to keep track of an information over time. Um, and that um, once you have an understanding of the conversation that is... Um, uh, detailed enough, uh, you can tell what are the reasons why people are stopping to use the form they are supposed to do. So if I decide not to use uh, the pronoun in a case in which you would expect me to use the pronoun, uh, you can tell this is probably happening because I'm upset at the person or because of affective reasons. So if, for example, instead of saying, uh, uh, she told me yesterday about this, uh, I say, oh, the idiot told me yesterday about this. Uh, I am violating uh, the rule in which I would use a pronoun, but the reason behind that is um, emotional and it has to do with the conversation going on. So when I found out about this, that like you could predict the form of the referent coming up in conversation, I decided to go into this line of work. <laughs> yeah, that is super fascinating. Um, yeah. And I think that wraps up this interview. So thank you so much okay. um, for of giving course. it. Sure. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This concludes this podcast. And special thanks to Georgia for doing this. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day.